You're listening to Investigation Insiders by Integris Intelligence. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Investigation Insiders. This is Farhad again. I hope you are all uh, doing well. Joining me today, again, is my friend and trusted colleague, Joe Morrow. How are you, Joe? I'm doing great today. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. You know what's crazy? We just uh, aired our 10th episode. Uh, that's that's pretty crazy considering how this all started, huh? I'm, I'm thrilled with that. I'm glad we're getting some good feedback and people uh, want to hear more. So let's keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So also joining us today is a legendary figure in law enforcement and someone I'm proud to call a friend, um, Ed Hartnett. Ed, how are you today? I'm well, Fahad. Thank you for having me. And Joe, thank you as well. Uh, uh, thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Um, so let me start by telling you a little bit about Ed. And really, we don't have enough time to go through everything. So I'm going to touch upon some high-level highlights. So he's got a pretty storied career in both the public and private sector. So as many of you who in our audience already know him, he started his career with the uh, New York City Police Department and ultimately retired as a deputy chief. Um, he then went on to become the police commissioner uh, of Yonkers. Um, after leaving Yonkers, um, Ed moved to the private sector where he became the president of a New York-based security firm. Um, and it was a pretty good transition, one that a lot of people uh, have difficulty making, but Ed certainly did it. And under his leadership, the firm really saw exponential growth and became a major, major powerhouse in the security business. Um, so today, Ed is the principal of his own consulting firm. And sort of lastly, something I'm very proud of, uh, he's one of the newest members of our advisory team. So did I get everything, Ed? Is there anything else you want to highlight there? Ahad, myself is my favorite topic. So if you want to keep going for another half an hour, that's, that's okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way. Uh, no, no, you, you, you captured it pretty well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was going to say, and also he's extremely funny. So I appreciate <laughs> you throwing that in there to lighten the mood today. So um, And modest, and very modest. And very modest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm actually quite humble. Thank you. You, you covered everything. I, I really appreciate it. You, you've actually done me a, a, quite, a, quite a service with all that, but thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. So today we're going to uh, talk about a pretty hot topic um, in terms of um, what's going on today in the world. And we're actually going to do this in two parts, right? Basically, the topic of conversation is, is crime going back to the levels it was during the 80s, right? And so in today's episode, we're, we're going to talk about uh, the 80s and what it was like. And in part two, we'll address questions like, you know, what's it like today and is crime going in that direction and, and, and things around that. Um, so I guess before we get started, and Ed helped to lighten the mood already, but just sort of a uh, lighthearted question for, for each of you. And I'm going to start with uh, you, Joe. Um, I want you to talk about something that either you cringe about 
or you miss when you think about the 1980s? Something I cringe about, and I I, I can recollect this because uh, I just watched some home videos with my kids recently of me from the late 80s was with those big blazers with those huge shoulder pads <laughs> and these bandanas and then the high hair that you had to use like half a can of hairspray. So my kids looked at me like, what the hell are you wearing? <laughs> I, I don't miss those days. Oh, that, well, how, how about you, Ed? What, what uh, Do you miss the spandex and the mullet or uh, are, are those the fond memories? Oh, listen, I uh, right before I came on the job, I had hair down to my shoulders and People didn't assume I, I used drugs. They, they assumed I dealt drugs, but uh, I had to get a haircut to come on the job. Uh, I tell you, I, I, if you don't mind, I could touch on both, uh, a cringeworthy yeah. one and a, and a thing I miss. Uh, some of the things I miss uh, is a saying we use a lot after you retire. Guys will say, you know, they miss the clowns, but not the circuit. Uh, and, and I certainly miss those clowns. And of course, I, I was one of them. You know, the camaraderie, uh, among the men and women that I work with uh, is, is second to none. Uh, nothing against, you know, doctors, lawyers, and, and you know, widget makers and CPAs. Uh, you don't see the kind of spirit and togetherness and uh, esprit de corps uh, that you do in policing. And I, I, I could speak to the NYPD, but I'm sure it's the same across the country. Uh, you know, you don't, you, I, again, I, it's ironic, but people often accuse the police and, and the NYPD specifically of uh, like being like a, uh, intolerant, racist organization. And frankly, I would say to them, just come to any cop's, you know, wedding, bar mitzvah, christening, deadly funeral, uh, barbecues, you know, police functions, you'll see a, a cross-section of the entire society. And, uh, you know, much more so than you see it, at, you know, in the rest of society, frankly. So I do miss that. Uh, cringeworthy, I mean, I was blessed in the job with, with great forces that looked out for me. But I have to say, and when I was getting my master's degree, I even used this individual uh, without using his name uh, uh, as, a, as an example of bad leadership, poor leadership. Uh, and I, I did have one boss uh, when I was a lieutenant, uh, and he was really, you know, universally regarded as a horrible human being. So I actually, he doesn't realize it, but uh, he did me a service because, you know, you learn a lot from the people around you. Most of, most of the stuff you learn is, is the positive stuff about bosses you say, I want to you know, do, do more like him and do more like her. In this case, I learned how not to be a boss from this guy. So uh, he didn't mean it because he certainly was not a, a sharing, generous individual. But I learned a lot from that cringeworthy individual of how to treat people, how to be a boss, how to look out for your people. And so, you know, I hope I covered the base there. But it, it's been mostly almost 99.9% .9 positive, you know, throughout my 32 years in law enforcement. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Um... Well, for me, the thing that I miss the most uh, is my hair. Um, so, <laughs> without without question. Um, and, Can we and, post a picture of your high school graduation well, on the listen, post? Well, if, if Ed will provide a um, his high school or a picture of that time, um, I just saw yours before we started recording, and you saw mine. I'm yep. happy to post all three, but it's all or nothing. <laughs> That's all I'm Let's do it, Ed. I got a I got a long hair shot waiting to go as soon as I get off. <laughs> <laughs> that that's awesome. Uh, and cringeworthy. I was I was uh, I was so young. I mean, a lot. Obviously, some of the fashion choices and things like that uh, are, are probably a little bit cringeworthy, but it was cool at the time. So it's all good. Um, so. 
So let's jump into it. Um, what was it like in the 80s? Um, we're going to kind of discuss it from three perspectives, right? So Ed obviously uh, started his career uh, in law enforcement at the time. Joe also um, in the mid 80s started her career in law enforcement at the time. And I was just a kid growing up uh, between Queens and a lot of time spent in uh, in Brooklyn as well. So we're going to start by kind of just talking a little bit about what each of us were doing. Um, so I immigrated here um, in in the early uh, in the early 80s and we settled in Ozone Park in Queens. Um, which was at that time a predominantly Italian neighborhood. Um, but where I specifically lived, it bordered um, uh, Brooklyn. Uh, so the East New York section of Brooklyn. So we were covered Ed by the 75th precinct on one side and the 106 on the other. Um, and so, uh, and, and as you know, on the East New York side, it was a pretty, uh, it was predominantly a minority neighborhood. Um, so, as you guys know, growing up in New York City, like as a kid, your entire like world is like a five to 10 block radius, right? Everything you did was right there. And so I had a lot of friends. Uh, my best friends were my cousins, right? I went to Brooklyn Tech, uh, then NYU. So while I wasn't born in the US or in New York, I'm a New Yorker through and through, right? Um, and I remember, how dangerous it was. I remember the feeling of always thinking something could happen every time you went out. I witnessed things. I was a victim myself. I knew a lot of people who were also victims. So when people talk about crime going back to these levels, it's really scary. So that's my story. Uh, Joe, what, what were you up to? Um, you know, I graduated in high school in 85. I started with the Bureau in 86. Um, so, you know, I was a female in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. There's crime. There was crime everywhere at that point. Uh, but I was you know, secluded. I was, uh, you know, in the strict Italian family. I didn't go many places. Then I started with the Bureau. I started really learning about what's happening around me besides what's in the neighborhood. It was kind of like a, a wake-up call to what's really going on, taking the trains into the city, hearing about seeing what you see on the train sometimes that are uh, illegal, um, dirty, pretty nasty. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world for what we went through. It, it educated me and it helped me grow up somewhat being so young at that time. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. So. Ed, well, why don't you why don't you take it from here? Uh, you know, where'd you grow up? Uh, why did you become a cop? I mean, uh, we'll we'll go through a, a series of questions, but why, why don't you start with with those things? Alrighty, I uh, I was my family my family is a uh, Irish immigrants. My mom and dad met in London during World War II. Uh, my siblings were all born in England. My my, my three siblings. Uh, they came here in 1955, and uh, I think the first official act they did was have me. So uh, yeah. uh, I'm I'm the only I'm the only American. I used to tell my siblings I'm the only one of us that could be president someday because I was <laughs> born here. But uh, uh, we moved out of Brooklyn. I was only five years old. We moved out of what was then called Bay Ridge, but then they changed the name to Sunset Park. So uh, St. Michael's mm -hmm. Parish. I was baptized in. Uh, 
my, my, my siblings went to OLPH uh, in Brooklyn in grammar school, but then we went to Washington Heights. I don't know anybody that lived in Brooklyn that moved to Washington Heights. My parents might have been pioneers of some kind. I don't know. But uh, they were, you know, listen, it was a working class neighborhood. We were working class people, certainly. Uh, my, my parents were building superintendents and my mom worked in the local AMP. I wound up in the AMP with her when I was old enough. Uh, I tended bar on the family bar. They had a small little bar in the area. The neighborhood was rough. The neighborhood uh, had changed a lot. Washington Heights, sadly, is, is I think, birth, the birthplace, all kidding aside, the birthplace of crack cocaine. Uh, so the neighborhood spiraled out of control pretty quickly. I came on the police department in 1979. We were the, the first class hired after the fiscal crisis in New York City. There was not a, there was not a cop hired uh, for five years. So we were, I was luckily in the first class hired in 1979. We were out in the street by 1980. 1980, the, the average cop in a radio call, because they had no, no infusion of young people, the average cop in a radio car, I think at the time, was 38 years old. Uh, wow. Big classes came on after us, but they, we were thrown right into the fire, no pun intended. Uh, I eventually wound up, I started out in the Bronx, I eventually wound up in the 32nd precinct in Harlem. And again, getting back to that camaraderie thing I mentioned before, I'm still in touch with my radio car partner from there. Several of the guys I worked with in the 3-2 precinct are still close friends of mine. Uh, it was a crazy time to be a cop. It was, you know what, it's ironic because it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, the, the neighborhoods were out of control. Bronx, Harlem, Brooklyn, parts of Queens, parts of Lower Manhattan. Uh, but the cops were tight. Most of the poor neighborhoods just had, you know, poor working folks trying to get by, trying to, you know, live from day to day. To your point, Fahad, afraid to walk the streets, afraid to be out at night. Uh, worried about their kids constantly. And you know, of course, in those areas, you had a lot of drugs, a lot of crime, a lot of violence. My, my precinct, the 32nd precinct, was one square mile, and we used to average about 70 to 80 homicides a year. Wow. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was outrageously out of control violence. But again, ironically, it was fun to be a cop because you, you just went out and you know, it seemed like every radio car team was, was out there active, handling all the radio runs, but looking to make arrests. So it was, listen, I mean, there was a skill to it, but, you know, you made a lot of gun arrests, a lot of drug arrests, a lot of stolen cars, a lot of arrests for violence. Uh, but again, it, it was fun. But at the same time, as I, as I progressed in my career, I saw pretty quickly that no one at the top, and again, no disrespect to the people at the top at the time, they seemed to be more worried about uh, corruption because they were all, they'd all lived through the Knapp Commission corruption scandal and the systemic corruption that was around at the time. So they were more worried about corruption than they were about murders and robberies. The average precinct commander back then probably had a rough idea of how many murders he had and maybe how many robberies, maybe. Uh, the detective squad commander worked in the same building. These two guys probably never even spoke to each other too often. Well, there was no coordination, no comstat, no cooperation with other precincts, certainly no cooperation with our federal partners and our state and local partners. So. It was kind of just a, a, a rudderless ship. Uh, and then it culminated, sadly, in the early 90s with, with homicide rates uh, in the 2000s, 2100, 2200. And then, of course, Giuliani came in, had the vision to bring in a guy like Bill Bratton, and then the, the ship started to turn around. But as, when you just talk about the 80s, it's funny, probably more for the second segment. Uh, the segment could be called Back to the Future. Because sadly, you know, it, we could be going back to those, to those, to those, tough, those tough times. 
Yeah, that's uh, uh, that that's 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 what the concern is. So, j just out of curiosity, of what why did you become a police officer? Like, was it something that um, you had always dreamed of? Was a lot of people just say, you know, I I applied, I got accepted, and I started. Uh, what was your story there? You know, it's funny you say that. My first partner, uh, very distinguished name, Austin Francis Muldoon the fourth. He, he goes by Tim for some reason, but he was a he was a police family guy. His dad was a cop. His dad was a cop. Uh, other guys, you know, they they said, you know, when they were five years old, five year old kid, they were playing cops and robbers. They always wanted to be a cop. You know, some guys told me like a burning bush told them to be a cop someday. I, I I don't fall into any of those categories. I was looking around the time. I thought about being a cop, but then I saw the layoffs in the seventies, and I said, you know, what am I going to do here? You know, I, I had a I had a degree from Fordham University. Uh, I, I, don't, I didn't think I was a towering intellect, but I think, you know, I'll get a job doing something, but nothing really interested me. So thankfully, you know, I took the police test, not as a lark, but I, I was about 23 years old and I said, you know, I'll give it a shot. If they call me, I'll give it a shot. Worst comes to worst, I'll do two years and I'll do something else. And you know, 32 years later, I was leaving law enforcement. So it, it just was a good fit for me. I, I don't think I would have been good at anything else. You know, uh, you know, again, you know, Doctor, lawyer, widget maker. I don't. I think I would have probably failed miserably at any of that stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I don't even I, know what a widget is, Fahad. What, what is a widget, by the way? I don't even know. <laughs> uh, whatever it is, count me I, out. I, I'll get you. I'll get you the definition once you get me that that picture we discussed. <laughs> okay, you got it. The so what about like anecdotal? Like, do you have any stories? Like, are, are there like cases or or just anything that you can recall from that time that really like sort of demonstrates sort of what it was like, um, either being a police officer or being a citizen at the time? You know, it, it, it's funny. A, a lot of the stuff back then, it was. I mean, we were. You know, again, getting back to my time in the 32nd precinct, and eventually I wound up, uh, if you made a lot of arrests back then, you wound up getting put into the anti-crime unit, which is kind of, a, kind of an odd name because, you know, you know aren't all cops supposed to be anti-crime? But this was a, a special unit that was a high arrest unit. You got to wear plain clothes. I mean, you know, with all due respect, my partner, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Brian Murphy and I weren't blending in too well uh, in, in the 32nd precinct, but, you know, we... We kind of, and it was, it was fun. It was like kind of cops, cops and robbers. You were, you know, chasing people and you were, you know, hiding in abandoned buildings, and jumping out on drug dealers and stuff. So, uh, you know, as, as crazy as it sounds, uh, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was quite enjoyable. And you did feel, you know, deep down that, you know, you were getting bad guys off the street. Uh, they were victimizing the entire neighborhood. There were some serious organized drug gangs out there. And, you know, it, it was, you know, as crazy as it sounds, you know, to to normal people, uh, it, it was it was fun to be a cop. Yeah, yeah. How about how about you, Joe? Yeah, uh, you, you remember any like anything specific, any incidents that happened that that kind of helped um, kind of bring you back to that time and understanding what it was like for you? There was an incident in Bensonhurst at that time. Uh, the a young man named Yusuf Hawkins was killed, and what came from that was such division amongst the community and the fear that was created to even walk down your street. You just didn't know what to expect. Uh, you know, I never want to go back to that time again. I recall that time very, very much. 
I remember that incident also. What a horrible, horrible thing that happened. Um, something I never want to see again. Yeah. When you live in an area where something like that happens, it stays with you forever. You know, on, on my side, again, because of where I lived, on, on one side, we were um, uh, dealing with sort of like... Um, uh, in our neighborhood, sort of the Italians, the mobsters that were here that were picking on us because we were different, right? And so it was a little bit weird because we were different here. And then on the Brooklyn side, we were different there, right? So we were getting picked on over there. But what, what I just remember is that there was just this feeling of like, lawlessness right like you like people could get away or do anything they wanted to you and yeah they might go to jail yeah might they might you know things might happen but a lot of little things happen where it just you know just felt like unnatural like people shouldn't be able to do these kind of things you know what i mean so i just remember a lot of uh things like that um and i'm, I'm sure you guys would agree that it, it was that sort of feeling right I, I think so. I think we were more just accepting of, hey, this is how people are, and they do stupid things, and you can't change it. It was just that mentality back then. I mean, you can't, nothing flies these days, but back then, a lot, people got away with a lot more. If, if yeah. I may, yeah. I think you, both, you, both used, you, you each used a word that, that I think captures it perfectly. When you said lawlessness, that was, that, that, that was a, a constant feel out there. And, and, and Joe, you said accepting, and we were, we were accepting. Like, like I accepted going to high school on a subway or a bus filled with graffiti. I, I accepted the fact that I may have to, you know, kick, kick the uh, back door of the bus to get out when a huge brawl breaks out, or maybe somebody pulls a box cutter on, on me and one of my friends. So, you know, we accepted it, you know, because I guess we didn't think it could get any better. I yeah. can agree with that. And, and that's that's what's scary. I mean, you know, and, and again, we'll, we'll get into this in, in, in part two is that that feeling is the thing that is the is the scariest is that if people start thinking that they can do whatever with limited consequence or 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 no consequence at all. I mean, then you immediately start reverting back to that. Right. Yep. Yeah. Good. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to conclude this episode, unless you have anything else you want to touch upon Ed on this episode. Uh, no, well, one thing I, I'll, I'll touch upon, cause it, it, it's kind of, it, it's eighties into the nineties, but cause I was in and out of the narcotics division in my career. And I wound up, you know, again, through good fortune, mostly uh, I went from, you know, making, making a few street level buys to doing buy and bust to search warrants, informants, and then when I got to the federal, you know, drug enforcement task force, you know, we wound up, I, I had super talented people, you know, cops, state troopers, federal agents, you know, DEA agents doing uh, wiretaps and Mexican and Colombian cartels. So I think sometimes folks forget, like those open air drug markets uh, really, really brought, brought these neighborhoods down and contributed to the, the crime and violence. Uh, these drug dealers are very territorial. Uh, they, anybody crosses the line with them, it's, it's gunplay. Uh, the, the people buying drugs sadly had to support their habits. So that's where all the burglaries and car break-ins and stuff like that, shoplifting, all that stuff. So the, the city was going down. And I, I'd like to say the men and women of the narcotics division were at the forefront of turning these neighborhoods around. I, I, uh, I bought drugs in the Lower East Side on duty, of course. Uh, and, uh, and I worked with teams as a lieutenant, you know, 
trying to clear up those neighborhoods and just constantly hitting those corners and making arrests for sale. And now, you know, kind of proud to say that those neighborhoods transformed, especially the Lower East Side, where, where we, we once bought heroin every day. Now there's a sidewalk cafe there. So I do take some personal pride in the fact that being part of that huge uh, bunch of uh, people in the Organized Crime Control Bureau at the time and the Narcotics Division is part of that, those Narcotics Division people were at the forefront of, of that whole turnaround, I think. You know, that that's an interesting point, Ed, uh, you know, partially because I, and one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you about this is that you kind of saw the transition from really bad to uh, not so bad to really, really good. Right. I mean, and 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 so now, again, it, it's just interesting to hear you talk about even just the pride in shifting the neighborhoods to a, a positive thing to now potentially talking about going backwards. So that, that's really interesting insight. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think it's important that people hear that directly from you, from someone that was involved in that. Yeah, so, yeah thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, so, I mean, great discussion so far. I mean, really brings back memories, both good and bad. Um, so thanks. <laughs> Thanks for, again, uh, joining us for today's episode, Ed um, and Joe. Um, looking forward to part two. Uh, see you all back for, for episode number two. Sounds My good. My pleasure, folks. Thank you again. Don't forget to follow us. We are on LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.